0: Lord, as people who believe with all of our hearts that Jesus conquered uh, the grave, help us to believe with all of our hearts that you are mighty to save in the here and now. So help us as we come to your word. Bring to our lives the help that we need in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, everybody. (coughs) This then is the last... In our series, High Impact Church, I was thrilled to hear how the small groups had been going uh, from the small group leaders meeting last week, or it might have been now the week before. Uh, the times of prayer and expectation that you talked about, I was fascinated how in that conversation the word expectation came to the fore. It was a word that uh, uh, was very much on my heart at the beginning of this you know that I shared at our Leaders Away Day, that God is calling us, I'm sure. To raise our expectation, our level of belief in all that he can do. And so with that in mind, let's uh, uh, keep our Bibles open or open them again in Acts chapter four, where the church had known great blessing. But the heat was just about to get turned up. And if uh, you find As we mentioned uh, already, last week God healed the crippled beggar and Peter used it as a platform uh, to present the Gospel. And so just like in every chapter, the truth about Jesus was again proclaimed. Alongside that was the visual demonstration that God was real because a man who'd never walked was walking. The anointing was on Peter's words and many more were coming to faith. But the powers of darkness are crouching ready to strike. John Stock calls it Satan's counter-attack. And Satan's attack can come in all kinds of guises. Therefore Paul will write later, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking, seeking for someone to devour. We might think that the attack here in Acts chapter 4 comes from an unlikely place, but if you know the stories of Jesus, you know how often Satan came in the guise of the religious leaders. And so Peter and John are arrested, <coughs> excuse me, arrested for nothing more than healing a cripple and preaching about the only person that can save us from a lost eternity. Hardly a crime, but a crime it was. And there they are in prison. And that's how the day ends. They seize Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. What a dreadful day. Or was it? Luke wants us to look at the end of that day from a different perspective to how they might have felt if they just looked at it from the perspective that their two greatest leaders, their two greatest advocates had ended up in prison. And you can see how Luke does that. If you've got your Bible there in front of you, you can see how you can read verse 3 and then go straight on to verse 5 without pausing for breath. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. And straight to verse 5, the next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. But Luke wants to make another point. He wants to help us see it from a different perspective. And so he slips in verse 4, even though it interrupts the flow of his writing in order to make the point. Many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The day didn't end in failure, according to Luke, but success. And as the testimony of the church all through the ages has told, you can lock up people, but you cannot shut up the gospel. That's been the story of the church right from its early beginnings, right through its history. You can lock people up, but you cannot shut up the Gospel. And Luke defines success here by the fact that even though the greatest proponents of their faith were now in prison, the Gospel was marching on. Luke loves the multitude, multitudes of converts, the mass successes. Not that he was unduly impressed by sheer numbers, but the crowds streaming into the fold of Christ are for him the visible expression of divine blessing resting on the church. But was this blessing and growth about to come to a very sharp and abrupt end as the crushing weight of the rulers of the land fell upon these young country fishermen? To move swiftly through the passage so we can get to the verses that I'd like us to focus on, uh, the council met, and as Julie said, the council said, do not speak any more about this Jesus. They said, we can't help but speak about this Jesus. And they said, do not do it because we'll, we'll do something if you do it. And Peter and John said, we still cannot help but speak about Jesus. The council then looked at ways possibly to punish them. Would a flogging be in order? But they feared the crowd who were so impressed by the cripple who was now walking that they let them go. It was a narrow escape. But the counterattack was underway. And now, instead of enjoying the blessing and favour of the people that we read about in chapter 2, the highest council in the land is on their case. And let's get this into some kind of perspective. This is the same council, the same group of people, the same men who only months ago had sent Jesus to the cross who only months ago who'd lied and twisted the truth and had no ounce of care and compassion for their master and their saviour. Things didn't look that great if that's what happened to their master. What might they expect for themselves? The rest of this passage that Tony read is about how they responded to the pressure, the persecution, the difficulty that they now face. Overwhelmingly, of course, their response was to pray. And that's what will occupy most of our thinking. That's what occupies uh, those verses. But notice first, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own. They might have been apostles, but they needed the support, the encouragement, the friendship, the prayer of the people of God. When the heat gets turned up in your life, where do you go? Where do you go? Do you have a place? Where people will receive you, pray for you, encourage you, support you. Where people will stand with you. I hope for many of us here, it's your small group. If you're not part of a small group, join a small group to help us care and encourage for you. But even if you're not part of a small group here, where's that place? Every Christian needs that place where they can run to, to be encouraged, refreshed and prayed for. And as I said, I hope for many of us, it's our small group. So they went back to their group, and their collective response, their spontaneous response, was to pray. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. I love that simple phrase. They raised their voices together in prayer, because it's not a description we would readily use of our own prayer meetings. They raised their voices. We often pray quietly. Almost as if we're afraid we might wake God up. It's very rare, isn't it, that you've heard someone pray with a raised voice. Am I right? We don't pray with raised voices. We're very much calmer and more controlled. So they raise their voices together in prayer, and one of the things about their praying is that they did it together. Now, we don't tend to do that either. If you venture to pray out loud in the prayer meeting, one of the things you are anxious about is whether someone else might choose to pray out loud at exactly the same time. Then, should you give way to the other person, or should you just carry on? I've started, so I'll finish. And then, if you were the person that gave way, would you have enough encouragement to get over your embarrassment and start that prayer again a little later? Don't tell me you've never thought of that. (laughs) They raise their voices together a cacophony of prayer. We might say that's not very English. Let me tell you, Jesus was not very English and even more remarkable, utterly unbelievable, I almost dare not say it to you, he was not very Welsh either. (laughs) It just struck me how different this description is of our prayer meetings. They raised their voices together in prayer. But of course, we're not like that. We're quiet and subdued, rarely showing our emotions, unless we're watching football, but not at a prayer meeting. And so they prayed, together together, Voices raised, crying out to God. Let's get into it itself. Firstly, it was all about a big God. Here we have another example of the principle that I talked about at the gathering last Sunday evening about where you were looking. Some of you uh, have been kind enough to say how helpful that was. In fact, wasn't the gathering just brilliant last Sunday evening? The drums and the rhythm, uh, it was just a genius. And uh, we were talking about getting our eyes off ourselves and our issues and looking on to this great big God who puts everything in its right perspective. Talking about how Caleb, despite the giants in the land, saw that God was even bigger. David, despite the nine foot tall Goliath, saw that God was even greater. Now what do these guys do here in Acts chapter 4? Where are they looking? Where is their focus? Do they start a discussion amongst themselves about how powerful the Sanhedrin is? Do they reminisce of the dreadful events just a few months ago, the last time they ran into this group of men? How they'd lied about Jesus, how they'd stood up the crowd against him. Do they cower in fear as they think about what punishment the Sanhedrin might issue if they are to get caught again? No. They choose not to look at the problem but to fix their gaze on God who is sovereign over all. Sovereign Lord. A term used by a slave of a master of unquestionable power. You are a big God whose power cannot be challenged. You see, I would have been far more likely to have allowed my gaze to have become filled with the power of the Sanhedrin. These were the most powerful men in the land, 70 of them, the Senate and Supreme Court of the Jewish nation, made up of the bigwigs of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the professional exponents of the law, all led by the high priest who acted like the president. This great force in the land had become so concerned about what Peter and John were doing that they interrupted their usual business in order to give impromptu time to this particular issue. I would have found it hard to be Peter and John or part of that early church and not to have allowed the Sanhedrin's power, their ability to totally destroy our fledgling church to fill my vision, even for it to become all-consuming. Humanly, these guys could have snuffed them out in an instant. So easy for their gaze only to have seen the Sanhedrin. But the early church didn't. And this is the key. Because we might so easily think that it's all too difficult and allow it to fill our gaze. The early church didn't. They did what Caleb did, what David did. They did what Peter was learning on the Lake of Galilee, as again we heard last Sunday night. They kept their gaze firmly on God and filled their vision with his power, his unchallengeable power, that utterly dwarfed the power of the Sanhedrin. So they began to pray, Sovereign Lord. Can you see it in verse 4? The God who was sovereign, verse 24, sorry, the God who was sovereign over creation. The God whom they are addressing, made the very heavens themselves, and everything in it, and John's 20 pound note that I still have everything, which means he made the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin belonged to God. They might seem so powerful, but God created them. His hand is on their windpipe. They only had breath in their lungs because God let them do so. Not only is he the God who made, verse 24, but he's also the God who spoke, verse 25. He's sovereign over revelation. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? to people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stands. Rulers gather together against the Lord and against His Anointed One. In their prayer, they not only see the God who creates, and has all things under His control, they see the God who speaks, whose every word is true. And as He had spoken those years ago, through David, that kings and nations would rise up against Christ. The peoples would plot, but it would be in vain. Ultimately, all those who take their stand against God and his Christ will do so in vain. The people's plot in vain. The root of the word rage, uh, why do the nations rage, is, is the image of a, of a neighing war horse. Imagine a horse all clad with heavy armour, uh, neighing and hoofing the ground, but being held back by a bit, a bridle uh, in its mouth. The raging of the nations is like that. All noise and aggression and commotion. But ultimately, they are held back. Conspiracy against God is ultimately doomed because you cannot outwit an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He will win. It's His creation. And what He has spoken will be He's sovereign over revelation. And thirdly, just in case their view of God was still too small, they proclaimed him as sovereign over history. And this insight, I think, is just absolutely genius. And if we grasped and embraced this in our lives, I think our Christian walk would be transformed. Look at these verses. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Hold on to your seats. Here it comes. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God was, is, always in control. Look at that verse. God is so powerful... That even his enemies, whilst acting against him, are actually achieving his purpose. That's power, isn't it? You have to be ultimately powerful if your enemies, even when they are acting against you, are fulfilling your purpose. It's all under his control. It's all moving inevitably, unstoppably towards his ends. And this was no theoretical theology for those early disciples. You see, they looked back on what for them was the most darkest day of their life just some months ago. When they had stood in the shadows, in the darkness, and they'd watched their Lord and Master die between two common criminals. And as the darkness descended, so their dreams evaporated and all their hopes faded. And in those moments, Jesus looked so utterly powerless. God himself seemed completely defeated. And as they looked back on that most dreadful of dreadful days, they had come to understand, because of the resurrection, that God actually in that moment, actually in the moment when it seemed that he was never more not in control, God himself, was still supremely in charge it was all because he had decided god unquestionably in control it was a life changing lesson for them and peter uh, is quick to mention it earlier on in acts already this man this jesus was handed over to acts chapter 2 by god's set purpose and foreknowledge that's why it happened It wasn't that God was out of control. It wasn't that the wicked people beat him for a moment and then God fought back with the resurrection. No, God was always in control. Every moment, his set purpose and foreknowledge. And with the help of wicked men, his enemies acting against him were actually doing his bidding. That is supreme power. And if ever there was a moment when they thought that God was out of control, that God had lost the grip of the situation, it was when His Son was dying on a cross and those disciples knew, because He was alive, that even in that moment when He hung on the cross, God was supremely in charge, totally in control. And if God could be in charge back then, then maybe He could be in charge still now. You see why that was so important? They needed to know Their God was still in control. And so as they pray, they fill their gaze with God who spoke, verse 24, who made, verse 25, who decided, verse 29. Is that God filling your gaze? I want to ask, do you look at life from the vantage point of that truth? Do you look at your situation, your circumstance, having already seen That God is utterly, supremely in control. That your enemies only exist because God gives them breath. Nothing is outside his grasp. And in a moment I might get a little excited about that. I'm going to calm down, take a deep breath, and be more English. It's important though, isn't it? You know, you look at the news today, who's in control? I want to know God's got his hand on their windpipe, don't you? And only now, with God filling their gaze, were they ready. They're ready to make a big ask. A big God, you can't make a big ask unless you've seen a big God. And they're ready to make a big ask. And they're ready because having spent this time looking at God and who he is, they can begin to believe That God can do something about it. They've moved to the point of having the right faith. You see, had they focused on their problems, they would soon believe that their problems would overpower them. Rather than begin to believe that God could overpower their problems. And as they look to God, who was the creator, the sustainer, the one who speaks, the one who decides, the one who's in control, so their faith begins grow and they're ready to ask you see Jesus said a curious thing didn't he he said I tell you the truth if anyone says to this mountain go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes it will happen it will be done for him most of us spend loads of time looking at our mountains don't we we call it worry we know exactly how big our mountains are and from our vantage point they look huge because we're only small And we cannot possibly imagine that our mountains could move into the sea because compared to us, our mountains are so big. But what if we filled our gaze with this God who is so, so big and always has been utterly and completely in control? Hey, then compared with God, my mountain's just a little molehill, perhaps. And I can begin to believe Him for change. You see, in this prayer of seven verses, they spend the first five verses getting their gaze on God clear. We tend to do it the other way around. We might have a quick praise thing at the beginning to get us going, but it's only so we can move into our asks as fast as we can. Five sevenths, or two thirds if you want to talk generally, of their prayer time was getting their gaze fixed in the right place so they can make a big ask and begin to believe that the big God can answer the big ask and secondly all that focus on God is so important to ensure not only that they've got the right faith but the right request you see sometimes we think that prayer is getting God to do what we want let me be very clear if you're praying with the attitude that you're getting God to do what you want you'll have the most miserable prayer life ever Prayer has nothing to do with getting God to do what we want, but everything to do with allowing God to do what he already wants to do. Such an important distinction. See, prayer is not about me and my ways. It's about God and his purpose. And having lifted their gaze, sovereign Lord, of whom we are only your humble servants. It's your purpose, not mine. It's your ends, not mine. It's your deal, not mine. And so they're ready. You see, without that, we focus on our problems, and we focus on the needs that we have, and we begin to assert our rights in prayer. God, I shouldn't be in this difficulty. What kind of God are you letting a child of yours be in this mess? And we get all shirty before the sovereign God, and that's pretty ugly, really. but they're ready because they've got God in the right place and whereas I might have prayed Lord keep me safe Lord if I keep out of their way will you make sure they forget about us and don't follow us anymore Lord we're really worried about all this stuff that's happening will you give us all your peace and maybe you'd help us to get out into the countryside where we can be free and live in safety but they don't pray any of those things I want them to pray those things don't you? because I pray those kind of prayers don't you? no they pray what seems to be the two central themes of the whole of this book and it's a prayer that will bring them into direct confrontation with the people humanly they should have feared most here it is verse 29 now Lord consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness stretch out your hand to to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus they pray for boldness and they pray for power. The two main themes of the whole of the book, which you will have read and read Philippians 2 if you've got through your reading plan. Well done, everybody, uh, if you've got there. Supernatural power and boldness to proclaim. That was the top of the prayer agenda for this high-impact church. Help us to preach boldly and release your power to do incredible things among us. Now I have to say that rising in our prayer agenda has been that God would save more people, that more people would be baptised, that people would be rescued from a lost eternity and brought into the family of God. And the early morning prayer time, uh, our week of prayer, a week ago, whenever it was, uh, when we focused on that in the morning just out there, uh, I was really inspired and encouraged as we were praying that God would do that among us. But top of this church's prayer agenda was slightly different. This high-impact church was not just crying to God to save lost people, but rather that they would be the ones that spoke boldly so that lost people would be saved. Do we recognize that in God's economy to reach the world, that we are the answer to the very prayers that we are praying. Not Lord, save lost people, but Lord, enable us to do it right, to get it right, to speak right, to live right, to be right, whatever the situation, whatever the opposition, whatever is thrown against us, that lost people might be saved. And are we willing to accept that God wants to do that His way and not ours? And so often in His way, the natural becomes supernatural, and the ordinary becomes extraordinary, because that's the God He is. And so will we believe that God through us will stretch out His hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs, bringing heaven to earth, that the signs of the coming kingdom, the kingdom that's coming and is already here but not yet fully here, may be increasingly revealed among us. You see... That's what happened with Jesus. And that's why the Bible calls them signs. You see, when Jesus raised Lazarus, it was a sign that one day we will be raised never to die again. When he fed 5,000 it was a sign that one day we'll all be fully satisfied as we feast in the kingdom of heaven. When eyes were opened and lame legs walked and leprosy sufferers were healed, it was a sign that one day all this would be over. And so I'm praying, may the signs of that coming kingdom increasingly break out amongst us as a testimony to us and to the world to whom we witness that there is a king and that king is coming and his kingdom is glorious and one day it will be here. Thank you for those that said something then. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, we're not asking for fancy stuff. We're just saying we want glimpses of the coming kingdom to help people in this temporal moment to see that there's more. To reach for the kingdom that is not quite here yet, but is coming. And so there's signs. And if you have a big God, and you make a big ask, what are you going to get? You're going to get a big answer. A big answer. And they did, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The place they were was shaken. How fantastic was that? But not before we get the plaster fixed, just up there in the corner, just in case fantastic, stop looking at the plaster up there, look at me they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that's good isn't it do you know why I'm so encouraged about that, I'm so reassured about that, these were the guys that got the mega filling at Pentecost and only two chapters later they needed to be filled again I understand that I leak and so do you the fact that I was full doesn't mean I am full. The fact that I was bold and felt empowered doesn't mean I am bold and feel empowered. The fact that I was in the zone is no guarantee that I'm anywhere close. We need to keep asking, keep receiving. And if this guy's had Pentecost poured out and only two chapters later they're coming back for more, then with confidence and boldness we can say day after day, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit. And as defining proof that they were filled, they spoke the word boldly. Despite the threats, despite the pressure, despite the risks. They were bold. I don't mean brash. We don't need brash people, do we? But we need bold people. To boldly love and to boldly live and to boldly serve and to boldly speak. And so their prayers were answered. But I would suggest not quite. I don't think the answer fully came until the next chapter, verse 14. When the fullness of the answer came on the early church that prayed, despite the threats, despite what men will do, despite what this world will try to do to crush and silence the gospel, God says, No, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Let me just read that whole paragraph to you because it's exciting. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers uh, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them because of all the threat of persecution, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Two things there. There was the salvation of the coming kingdom. And there were the signs of the coming kingdom. That's what defined this high impact church. Salvation and signs. And so Luke tells the story that goes on several more chapters right through to chapter 28. And it seemed to me that the greater the pressure, the greater the power. The greater the risk, the greater the result. God was in control. In fact, there was so much power at work that in verse uh, 7 of the very next chapter we read that so the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So goodness knows what all those other things were. Luke doesn't say rapidly until now, so much faster than all the times before and a large number of priests. Were they the same priests who were part of the Sanhedrin? Hey, we don't know. Were they part of their gang? Most certainly they were. Enemies were becoming friends. And there we leave the church. That was their story. Hey, this is our story. May it all be his story. May it all be his story. As we sing in a second about a light that is coming to the heart that holds on. I don't know what your... Yeah, come, otherwise you won't be ready. Uh, And uh, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your situation... I don't know what your Sanhedrin is. And, And not only has it stopped you speaking about Jesus, it's threatening to crush the very life out of you. To kill what God is doing. I want to say, God says, look up today. Look up and see a power that is greater than any human power. Look up and see a God who is always in control. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Oh no, you never let go. A light that is coming for a heart that holds on. Let's stand and sing together.